If you have your Bibles, to turn with me to the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible, just before the second book. And uh, we've been tracing our way through Genesis. We've looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and now the attention shifts to Jacob and the creation of his family. Jacob, who will be Israel. Let's pray as we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story. It's our story. It's our history. It's where we come from. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your plan of salvation. Encourage us this morning as we learn about Jacob and about your promises and about your hand and about your will. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of the Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, whose name I pray. Amen. So Genesis 29 and verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Wonderful story, isn't it? Anyway, then I'm, I'm getting carried away. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. 
But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to be his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. I, I, I'm not sure whether you, if I say to you, do you know Numbers 32, 23, you would instantly say yes, but you do know it because it's well known. In Numbers, Moses is nearing the end of his life and he's preparing the 12 tribes to cross the Jordan to the Promised Land. But once they get over the Jordan to the Promised Land, they have to fight off the inhabitants of the promised land and settle on the other side of the Jordan. And in Numbers 32, two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, asked if they could settle in Gilead on the east of the Jordan. They were supposed to cross over, inhabit the west, but they wanted to settle on the east. And Moses basically says, God will allow you to settle on the east. You can build folds for your livestock, you can build cities and settle here with your families, but you have one stipulation. Before you settle here, you must cross over there with the other tribes on the other side of the Jordan. And you men must fight shoulder to shoulder with your brothers to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land. Because, of course, it would not be fair if they just stayed there. The tribe said, we don't want to go and fight. We'll just stay. This is nice. So Moses says, you can have this land, but first of all, you need to cross over, fight with your brothers, Drive out the inhabitants. Then you can cross back over and settle. That was the agreement. Fight with your brothers, then come back. And it's in the middle of that arrangement with Reuben and Gad. We have this verse from Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And you, so you know that? We, we all know that. It, 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 I, I grew up singing, um, what was it, um, Run away, run away, O poor sinner, you can never run away. You'll be lost without a doubt, and your sins will find you out. Be very sure you can never run away. It's one of those phrases like the King James or Shakespeare that has just passed into common parlance. Be sure your sin will find you out. And it comes from that story in the Bible. And we know that to be true from our own experience. We know it from the great Stories, the great books, the great films, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumais. The protagonist, Edmond Dante, is betrayed by all the people close to him, by a jealous crewmate, by a conniving friend, by his cowardly neighbor, by a power-hungry magistrate. And the innocent, naive Edmond Dante, then through this betrayal, is forced to languish in a remote prison, the chattel, the chatu, and when he's in his prison, the betrayers get rich 
and powerful from their treachery. But if you know the story, after 14 years, Edmund escapes from prison, finds long-lost treasure, becomes a count, and plots his revenge. The story, The Count of Monte Cristo, is about justice. It's about mercy, but it's about Numbers 32, 23. Be sure that your sins will find you out. Or as Paul says in Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. And we can see that in the world today, and we can take comfort from that. God is not mocked. We often think about injustice, don't we? We may be treated unjustly ourselves, or we may see injustice in the world, but God is not mocked, and he will make everything right. That's what Genesis 29 is about, what you sow, you shall also reap. Um, we had a, you know, we, we, I, I was on a call yesterday, and one of the things somebody said is that all the things that we see today, all the craziness, all the things that young people have to face at school, we are just, we're just reaping what we sowed. As you know, generations ago, you know, the 1960s, we thought it was okay, but we are, we are now reaping what we sowed. Be sure your sins will find you out. You may think that when you sin, you've got away with it. And you may well do. And sometimes you think you're better off because of your sins. But the word of God said, your sins will find you out. It's one of the confusing things. It doesn't seem to right as we go through the book of Genesis that so often the God's people are not just sinning and getting away with it, but they're actually sinning and better off because of it. Abraham lies about Sarah when he's in Egypt. You know, that whole, she's my sister kind of thing. And what happens? He gets rich. Then he lies again. He gets richer. Isaac lies about Rebekah because these Hebrew women are just reaching their beautiful prime age when they're 80. And he lies again. Gets rich. Jacob, man, did Jacob connive. He plotted and lied to get the blessing from his brother Esau. And what happens? He got the blessing. Sin really does pay. Over and over it seems that if God's chosen family lies, they not only get away with it, but they're better off for it. But if you look carefully, we see in every case, God blesses his people despite themselves. It's his will. And in every case, though God chooses to bless, trouble follows close behind. Abraham was in Egypt and he lied and then he got rich. And one of the things Pharaoh gave him was wealth and servants. Most people think that one of those servants was Hagar. She was an Egyptian servant. And we know that Hagar being there led to that crazy sinful plan that maybe they can get an heir. It doesn't seem to be working with Abraham and Sarai. Let us try Abraham and Hagar. And that set in motion something that for the rest of their lives and to today is a pattern of bitterness, jealousy, and conflict. Isaac, he got rich, but then the Philistines got jealous and they stopped up the wells of the land. Jacob, he schemed to get the blessing and then ended up a man on exile far away from his family. He was his mother's favorite, the apple of his mother's eye, and he never saw her again. 
And so for the rest of the book of Genesis, we have 20 plus chapters to go. I trust you're as excited as I am about that. The rest of the, the, rest of the book is about the promised family in conflict. So you can't say that they got away with it. In each case, God blesses them, but in each case, trouble and consequence follow behind because of their sins. We are never better off for, sin, for sinning against God than for obeying him. We are never better off because God is thinking in the long term, the long, the long run. God will redeem our sins, forgive our sins. He will turn our failures into triumphs of his glory. That happens, praise the Lord. But we're never better off for sinning. And eventually, though we seem to get, get away with it for a time, it may seem that we're better off because of our sin. Eventually our sins will find us out. That is the story here. This is Jacob's, if you like, comeuppance in some ways. But here's the good news. This is not all this story is about. And that is not what the Bible is about. And that is not what your life has to be about. You don't have to be, ident you don't have to be identified by your failures, but be identified by God's grace. Don't be identified by your failures, be identified by God's grace. Your sins will find you out. That doesn't have to be the end of the story because God forgives sin. That is the wonder of grace, that God forgives sin. That's why we pray to him, forgive us our sins. It's not the end of the story because God redeems sin and God uses our sin to accomplish his purpose. So on the one hand, Genesis 29 is about what goes around comes around. But it's about the God who disciplines those whom he loves. It's about the God who confronts us with our sin. But he loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Let us understand what God was teaching Jacob and then try and understand at the end what he might be teaching us. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 29, the story has deliberate connections to the previous chapters. In verse 1, Jacob went on his journey. Literally, he lifted up his feet. The only time you have this expression in the Bible, he lifted up his feet. He rose from his spot. Where was he in chapter 28? He was making his way home, if you like, to his ancestral home. But it stopped at Bethel and received that vision from the Lord. He got up on his feet, he lifted up his feet and continued to Mesopotamia. He's going to meet his wife. And if you've been with us in the studies of Genesis, you should hear the connections. Because in chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant to Mesopotamia, back to Haran, to get a wife. Because he didn't want to get a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. So he sent back to his own family to find a wife for Isaac. Well, here we have Jacob meeting Rachel. And where did Abraham's servant first encounter a wife for Isaac? By a well. Where does Jacob encounter his wife to be? At a well. It could be the same well when they get back to the land of Haran. You can tell I'm an, I'm an old romantic at heart. But if you think of all the connections, Laban was there the first time round, 
when Abraham's servant found Rebekah to bring as a wife back for Isaac. Laban was there exercising some kind of parental authority. So Laban is probably connecting the dots. We've seen this film before. A man comes from a far distant land, travels back to his family's home, where he will find at the well a wife and a new family for his own. So think of the connections. They travel to the same place. They find the same family. They stop at the same well for a wife for Jacob, a wife for Isaac. The girl comes to draw water at the well. In both stories, the girl returns to her father to tell her what happened. And in both stories, the man is brought to stay at the father's house. And in both stories, the man and the woman get married. So Genesis 29 has echoes of Genesis 24. It is the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 28. The Hebrew word hina, translated behold, shows up three times in chapter 28, verse 12, 13, and 15. Three times in that scene in Jacob's dream. Behold, behold, look. And three times in 29, we have the same word, hina, verse 2, verse 7, verse 25. So chapter 28 is God's promise. Look, this is what's going to happen. And chapter 29 with the same Hebrew expression, Look, behold, it happened, it happened. God's promise, God's fulfillment. It isn't that chapter 28 was a prophecy about finding your wife at a well, but it was the Lord's promise to Jacob, I will be with you, I will go with you, I will help you. So we are meant to see that Jacob's success in Genesis 29 in Haran is on account of God's promise to him at Bethel. Now, the story with Abraham's servant in chapter 24, we're deliberately told that God guided the trip. Here we don't have that, but no doubt the same sovereign hand is guiding behind the scenes. This isn't Jacob's luck. This certainly isn't Jacob's ingenuity. This is God's plan, God's promise. He told Jacob, you don't deserve it, but I'll be with you. And the next place where he goes, we see the Lord's hand is with him. Verse 6, he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. If this was a film, this is when the music would suddenly start playing, isn't it? It really is when you see her coming and you'd have the strings in a crescendo or some magical heart music, something to indicate this is going to be good when Rachel comes into the picture. Now, verses 7 and 8 are a little strange. They seem to be paused in. He says, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep. And they say, We cannot until the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away. Some say this is Jacob showing how diligent he is, ready to get to work. And they are lazy and just hanging around, hanging out. Others say this is Jacob being arrogant. He just got to the land and already he's telling the shepherds what to do. All right, as I think most likely, it may have been a plot on Jacob's part to send the men away so he can be with Rachel. But whatever it is, Jacob is smitten with Rachel. It is truly love at first sight. 
Three times we have mentioned here that she's the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Why belabor this point? Because we're meant to see he has found the family he's looking for. This was the plan Rebecca had. Go back to my family, go back to Laban, and there you will find a family for yourself. So he has made it. And I don't know whether you picked it up as I read it, but one of the most bizarre stories is tucked away. Maybe you didn't even notice it, how strong Jacob is. Did you, did you, did you get that? How, how strong he is? See, in verse 2, it says there was a well, three flocks of sheep, and the stone on the well's mouth was large. Okay, so you've got this great big stone. And verse 3 says, when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds, the shepherds would roll the stone from the, from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in place. You don't leave the well uncovered. Maybe travelers would seek to draw from the well or animals fall in or something. So this large stone is protecting the well. And we're told deliberately it's very large. It's so large that you needed three different flocks together so you had multiple shepherds to move this stone. It even says how many had to be there. But what does Jacob do? He rolls up his sleeves in verse 8. We cannot wait. And as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, Jacob came and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban. The Bible is really realistic in telling us what humans are like. This isn't the last time a young man wants to show feats of strength for the young woman he wants to impress. It really isn't. Stand back, shepherds. But Jacob, it takes several men, you know. <laughs> but whether it's like Sansom-like strength from the Lord or whether the Lord being with him or whether... It's that Jacob was so wanting to impress the girl that he got extra strength right there. I just saw her. There it is. Stand back. What took many men, Jacob does by himself. You can imagine him saying, it's nothing. Oh, Rachel was looking. I didn't notice. Where is she? But he was so overwhelmed at the sight of Rachel. He knew she was, she was it. She was what he'd been waiting for. This was love at first sight. Beautiful in form and appearance. It's a mark of the matriarchs in the family that they're beautiful, which is meant to reflect an inward beauty. Verse 11, he kisses her, but he's kissing Laban at the next one. So this is a greeting rather than <laughs> anything inappropriate. This is it. So he gives the greeting and then he weeps aloud. So you have this wonderful man who's just moved a stone all by himself and he's so overcome with Rachel, he kisses her, weeps aloud, he's made it to his mother's family. And he knows that this is the woman that I want to marry. He's overjoyed. God has been with him. God has guided him. So he goes back and stays for a month with Laban. And Laban eventually says, just because you're my family... Should you serve me for nothing? How much do you want? How much should I pay you? And reflecting on Laban's character in total, this is Laban probably manipulating, saying, I want to have your mine, your my hireling. 
I don't want you to be able to come and go, but if I pay you, then I have authority over you. Jacob says, I want to marry Rachel. This is not that daughters were considered property, but it was the familiar practice of paying the bride price, the dowry. Remember when Abraham's servant came, he came with Abraham's wealth. It said in chapter 24, he came with camels and choice gifts. Jacob doesn't have that. He literally has the shirt on his back. He doesn't have a bridal price. He didn't come with the wealth of the family. He has himself. So he says, this is what I can give. I can work. Laban knows he's getting a good deal. We don't know why Jacob set the bar at seven years. Maybe he needed to wait until she was of marriageable age. Verse 19, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Not because she's a property, but with a bride price, it's the necessary gift that the father gives the woman to the man. It's just what we do in weddings when the dad gives the daughter to the husband. And then we read in verse 17 that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. A lot of commentators spent a lot of ink wondering what it meant that Leah's eyes were weak. But remember, women prior to marriage would be veiled in public, so you might not see much more of them besides their eyes. So what their eyes looked like was really important, because many times it's what all, all people could see in public. Many people think that weak is a derogatory term, that she wasn't as attractive as Rachel, but we don't have to see it like that. Because many times weak means soft, delicate, tender. So it could actually be a positive attribute about Leah, but simply as Jacob sees compared to Rachel, he only sees perfection in Rachel. Whether that was, so, so whether that was a compliment or not for Leah, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And then we have this deception that ha happens on the wedding night. Jacob finally says in verse 21, seven years have elapsed. We don't have any record of that, but the narrative jumps forward. Laban f throws a party. There is too much drinking at the party. We read between the lines, Jacob has drunk too much. The bride would have been veiled. The tent would have been dark. And if Jacob had had too much to drink, you could understand how the story goes. Did Leah go along with it? Did she think it was a good idea? Or is she a victim of Laban's wickedness? We're not told. The Mosaic law will forbid being married to two sisters, Leviticus 18, 18. But here, Laban literally pulls the wool over Jacob's eyes. Laban seems to come out ahead in these shenanigans. He has both of his daughters married, he gets hard labor from this muscular man for another seven years. And it'll be a little bit later in the story. We see God has different plans for Jacob with relationship to Laban. But here's the heart of the matter. That's the story. Here's the heart of the matter. Jacob is getting what he deserves. Be sure your sins will find you out. You go back to verse 16. If you know the rest of the story from earlier in Genesis... Verse 16 should sound ominous. Laban says, tell me what your wages shall be. And before Jacob can answer, the, the narrator tells us Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. 
She's not his only daughter. She's the younger daughter. And we know from the rest of Genesis there are certain cultural expectations for the older to come first and then the younger. Laban is reversing the trick on Jacob that Jacob played on Isaac. The younger supplanted the older. Jacob was the younger. Esau the older. Jacob got the birthright and the blessing. Jacob is his name because he's a trickster. But now the tricks have come home to roost on Jacob. Again, it's older and younger. Jacob thought the younger would supplant the older. The older must come before the younger. Not that Laban knew what he was doing. There is the word firstborn in verse 26. And after that, Jacob had nothing more to say because he knows there is nothing more he can say. The player has been well and truly played. Jacob's sins have found him out. His past have caught up with him. Laban spoke more than he knew. In verse 25, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Why have you deceived me? Which is exactly the same word for Genesis 27 relative to Jacob's action. So Jacob in this moment must have had this painful memory. I was the deceiver. I was the one who supplanted younger for older. Not unlike David when confronted by Nathan. How could that man steal the poor man's lamb? David gets it and Nathan says, thou art the man. And in the same way Jacob is surely seeing, I was the deceiver, now I've been deceived. Younger does not come before the older. Jacob reaps what he has sown. But we shouldn't misconstrue Genesis 29 for Jacob or for us. This is not a punishment. God has more in store than to teach Jacob a lesson. Yes, he disciplines those he loves. Why did Jacob have to work so hard for Rachel? Because God had so much hard work to do on Jacob. 20 years of labor. Seven turns out for Leah a week, and then he gets Rachel. But he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And he's going to work six more years for the flocks. 20 years with his scheming. Sometimes deceiving father-in-law because Jacob needed to see something about himself. This was not wasted time in Jacob's life. It wasn't wasted when Paul was sent to Arabia. It wasn't wasted when Moses lived amongst the Midianites for 40 years. It wasn't wasted as Jacob served 20 years with Laban. God has work to do, and it started by showing Jacob, be sure your sins will find you out. You thought that little trick between the younger and the older. You thought you got away with it. I blessed it. You have the birthright. You are the promised one. But do you think you got away with that trick? And when God shows up, he wants Jacob to know and wants Jacob to see. And he wants to work on Jacob. He not only wants to show him, but to transform him. Jacob is not the last person to need Laban in his life. Now, some preachers say you're not supposed to preach this way, but it is true. The New Testament says the Old Testament is there to be an example for us in part. 
So I do feel justified in asking this question. Do you have a Laban in your life? Now don't say yes, do not nudge and say yes and I'll point him out. I'll point out Laban in this room, that would be a bit embarrassing. But do you have a Laban in your life? Someone who is making your life miserable. Please don't point any fingers, really not. But someone who's working you to the point of exhaustion. Someone, if truth be told, you would really rather never see again. Do you have a Laban in your life? And I'm I'm definitely not saying just take it and you don't seek justice or you don't seek a change of circumstance or depending on the injustice, you don't tell people. It's not a blanket statement. But here's the point. Consider that possibility that that Laban is not in your life by accident. Maybe the Laban is in your life to show you you have a little bit too much Laban in your life. Or simply to refine you. Either way, don't be so fixated on getting rid of Laban that you miss what God is teaching you. It is easy to think, why am I around these people? Why do I have to deal with these difficult people at school? My family. Do you know my family? People who work for me. The people I work for. Well, consider the difficult people in your life, the Labans in your life. Do you have any of those difficult qualities yourself? Because sometimes the most difficult people are that way because they are most like us. That may not always be the case, but consider, God is not wanting to punish you, but to transform you, to change you, even if it means putting up with hard labour, even if it means feeling cheated. So note very well, this episode in Jacob's life wasn't an instance of cursing. If you go back to chapter 28, verse 14, it was God's promise of blessing, a lot of blessing. So don't mistake chapter 29 as God's cursing Jacob. Just as you and I shouldn't always mistake the labans in our lives, the sins finding you out. Well, now I'm cursed. Look at what I have to deal with. Now God is punishing me. Now God is making up for all the bad things that I've done and he's going to twist the knife in my back. No, my friend, chapter 29 is God blessing Jacob, not cursing Jacob. He loved him enough to show him his sin. And my friend, God loves you enough to show you your sin. He loves you enough. What he promised at Bethel, I will bless you, I am with you, I will keep you. And it's true in chapter 29, even though it seems like a lot of hard labour. So this is the lesson for Jacob, and this is the lesson for me, and this is the lesson for you. Jacob's sin found him out. But just because your sins find you out does not mean that the Lord has lost track of you. Our sins will find us out, but that doesn't have to be the end of the story because God forgives sin. God forgives sin. God redeems sin. God turns sin to accomplish his good purposes. 
So if there's a label in your life, just ask the Lord, Lord, what are you teaching me? What should I learn? How are you making me more like your son? May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.